Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free for you, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 212 is, what is literature? And we read the first two essays in the book by Jean-Paul Sartre, What is Literature? from 1948. For more information, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer enjoying the superiority of live dogs to dead lions in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey sitting with an attitude of generosity in Madison, Wisconsin. Yay, more Sartre! Yeah. Yeah, last time it was too fun. We had to do more of this, and I'm a little more at home in something that's just about literature and that's basically in the same space as like Kant arguing about is art disinterested or not. Plus, Sartre is a great writer, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I've never read this much Sartre in my life. I'd never actually heard of this book, nor had I heard of Black Orpheus or Anti-Semite and Jew, though. He was very prolific. Yeah, it seems strange that people stop at his earlier stuff where I feel like the more that we read about his notions of interpretation and authenticity and things like that, the more that I actually like it, the more that it actually makes sense, the more that I can connect it to Nietzsche and other folks, and it doesn't just sound painful. Well, he had this whole career, just reading about his biography, after the war, he starts this journal, and he self-consciously lives the life of a public intellectual. This stuff is at the beginning of that, but that goes on for decades. Right, maybe he did become an enormous tool, but... Maybe he was an enormous tool the whole time. I don't know. <laughs> Not by this point. Prima facie, you just can't tell by what someone writes what they're like, actually. He could be a complete tool and be a great writer. That's been my experience on numerous occasions. <laughs> the personality of the writer as revealed by the writing. I think there's no possible reflection of the personality of the writer in their writing. That's not my experience. Why don't I give the, I worked a long time on the first essay. I think it probably makes sense to do them one at a time. The book, What is Literature, right? It was published in 1948. It was originally a collection of essays that were published in separate journals. And he's responding to critics, people who said things like, you want to murder literature. <laughs> the dispute is over whether literature can be political or to use the word that's used in this translation, engaged. Sartre's critics claim that engagement basically ruins art. If you want to do politics, do politics. But otherwise, stay away from it when you're trying to do art. In the first essay, What is Writing?, he's basically going to both agree and disagree. He agrees with his critics when it comes to poetry, and he disagrees when it comes to prose. Poetry, it turns out, cannot be engaged, and prose must be engaged. Poetry cannot be engaged because you know, instead of using words as signs and tools of communication, the way you do in prose, poetry treats words as things. And this is something that will take a while to flesh out. But the upshot of that is poetry demands that we engage in a sort of aesthetic withdrawal that we've talked about with Kant. And because of that, it can't be used to express the emotions of indignation and other things that we need to have in engaged political writing. It can represent them in a sense, it can symbolize them, but it can't express them. And that's what we need for engagement. Prose, on the other hand, must be engaged. It must be engaged because when we communicate with others, we are acting in the world. We are revealing things about the world or ourselves to others. And that inevitably changes things. It inevitably changes other people. 
So we are, in a sense, political actors as soon as we begin to engage in prose communication. And anything we do aesthetically is what he says, it's thrown into the bargain. In fact, if we get too aesthetic with our prose, we get distracted from its communicative function. So, and the last part of this, he just ends by critiquing his critics in ways that I think are sometimes hilarious. But he will say what they are actually looking for from literature is a message. Basically, these timeless truths that can be abstracted from books to say something about their passive, unengaged, day-to-day suffering in the here and now. And he's going to give us some detail about why that is. But that's the basic outline of the first essay. Right. He thinks that the folks that point to classic literature and say, they were all about beauty, and you should be all about beauty too. They're actually willfully misunderstanding what those past authors were doing. The past authors did actually have urgent concerns that they were trying to communicate, but because those concerns are not our concerns, we end up defanging them. We've done this plenty of times in the podcasts ourselves where we say, when I think I introduced Sartre, maybe at the beginning of last episode, is what a great writer, you know, kind of a nutty guy. And especially if you psychoanalyze, which he really objects to the practice at the time of not taking the writer seriously and just saying, oh, you know, Rousseau only made those condemnations of the theater because he was such a grumpy guy. And so we can admire how Rousseau writes, but we don't actually take him seriously. He's not going to convince us not to go to the theater. And he thinks that's just entirely typical of the way folks treat past art. The great books question of enjoyment of literature, we can talk about an interesting contrast between that and the way that we put that in our Alan Bloom and St. John's episodes where, no, actually, classic literature is addressing live perennial questions, even though we're not concerned about the Peloponnesian War in particular or the particular things that were going on in Rousseau's time. There's something about the way they put it that's, in fact, advantageous about considering it that way as opposed to just considering particulars of today's political movements. So one little disagreement I would have in his emphasis, he's talking about poetry mostly to distinguish between poetry and prose. He is not a poet. Obviously, we know from Black Orpheus, he was very enthusiastic about poetry. He published some poetry in his magazine there. He was very selective about it, apparently. But I didn't see so strongly this idea that poetry can't be political. It seems to follow, maybe from what you said, Wes. But he really is concerned to just distinguish the two, that poetry is concerned with the surfaces of things, with words themselves, with words as aesthetic objects. Whereas prose is more like using language in the ordinary sense. You're actually trying to do something. So the connections to performatives and J.L. Austin, that stuff was all coming to my mind. There's something very utilitarian about prose, even though obviously the style of prose does matter for it being good persuasive prose. He says this actually directly. On page 18, he says, One easily understands how foolish it would be to require a poetic engagement. Doubtless emotion, even passion, and why not anger, social indignation, and political hatred? are at the origin of the poem, but they are not expressed there as in a pamphlet or confession. So, insofar as the writer of prose exhibits feelings, he illustrates them, whereas if the poet injects his feelings into the poem, he ceases to recognize them, and so on. So, Emotion has become thing. Engaged writing requires us to express certain emotions, like indignation, and poetry submerges those emotions into symbols, basically imaginary objects. It could be like the yellow sky, in such a way that they're not going to have that communicative force. We're not signifying indignation if we have a symbol of indignation in our poem or painting. No, I think that's right on the interpretation. 
There's an interesting discussion to have, which I expect that we will, what that difference is between a thing and the interpretation of a thing, right? Sartre is making a really big distinction between an object and an object as a sign, an interpretation of an object. That's a live discussion about whether or not you engage with objects directly at all, or whether you're always engaging with signs. And at some level, the interpretation of those objects, even if they're poetical objects or prose objects. And so there's a way in which the distinction that he's talking about gets fuzzy at the edges. And also, if I think about a poem as presenting the sky like a painting does, so it requires interpretation versus some kind of prose that is describing or convincing you about an emotion or about the sky or any of those things. Walking through those two things and how they're different, they collapse a little bit after a while. They get closer. He starts out very early on with that point, Dylan, which is one we're used to, right? Which is that sense data are themselves theory-laden, or to use his phrase, penetrated with signification. But the problem is, this is why I use the word symbol, because if I'm talking about anguish, there's the word anguish, and it signifies the thing I'm talking about, and it could be the anguish of Christ on the cross, for instance, an example that he's using. I'm hardly even conscious of the word itself, of its sound, of its form, to use his analogy, like a window, and I just go straight out through the window to the thing that I'm talking about. But if I have painted something, so he refers to Tintoretto's painting of Christ on the cross, where there's part of the sky has a yellow tint, and we could take that as symbolizing anguish. That symbol may point to anguish in some sense, but it also is what it is. So it's yellow sky. And the way Sartre talks about this is that the anguish is submerged into that imaginary object, the yellow sky. It becomes opaque like the object. Instead of that yellow sky being a window that we can use to talk about anguish, the thing that's doing the symbolizing is in the foreground, and what's being symbolized is in the background. The thing we're immediately paying attention to is that yellow sky. And we just get this anguish, what he calls anguish become thing. Part of that is that in it as a thing, it has a richness as a thing that goes beyond it being a sign for anguish. As he points out, it's also a yellow sky, right? <laughs> the word anguish, it's not really part of the presentation. It's used as a tool, like he said. The, the yellow sky isn't just a tool. It is what it is. It's the object of aesthetic contemplation. It makes you think of words that, in their sound or in their shape, evoke the thing that they're talking about, right? So that they have that kind of embodiment. He doesn't talk about that. That would be the purest, yeah. Yeah. I think he rightly starts by talking about the painting because it's much easier to see than when you start talking about poetry. But the poetry version of this is just using words metaphorically. It's just to be talking about a yellow sky in the poem and to be meaning something else. So maybe if we read page 17, just to give a taste of how he's writing about that. Tintoretto did not choose that yellow rift in the sky above Golgotha to signify anguish or to provoke it. It is anguish and yellow sky at the same time. Not sky of anguish or anguished sky. It is an anguish become thing an anguish which has turned into yellow rift of sky, and which thereby is submerged and impasted by the proper qualities of things, by their impermeability, their extension, their blind permanence, their externality, and that infinity of relations which they maintain with other things. That is, it is no longer readable. 
Okay, as you said on page eight, notes, colors, and forms are not signed. They refer to nothing exterior to themselves. There's no abstraction like pure sound. All perception is shot through with signification. But he says there is a dim meaning which dwells within a pure sound, a light joy, a timid sadness. It remains imminent or trembles about it like a heat mist. It is color or sound. He's trying to give a phenomenological account of what the connotation of a thing is, as opposed to if you use a word to refer to something, use it in the normal sense, you're not concerned with what word you use. In fact, you might forget later what words were used. You just remember the ideas that were conveyed. But if you're presenting words or other elements like that, there's a sense in which they have a meaning. Blue feels cool or something like that. But he just wants to say that that's a totally different way of having a meaning. It's a dim little meaning. Music is a nice analogy here, right? Is that the piece might have been intended to have a meaning in terms of the emotions that it's evoking or whatever. And same thing with a painting too. But the nice thing about music is that it's still a series of notes and a series of notes and spaces between the notes and strength of the tone of playing and all that, that makes it a piece that is, in my experience, completely separate or uninterpretable in terms of its meaning as a sign. This heat mist part, <laughs> right? He's trying to give an example of a way in which there's no quality of sensation so bare that it is not penetrated with signification. So even before we start using paintings or poems to make these things symbols, we could say they have their own proto-symbology. When I use symbol, I'm using that in contrast to signification, right? When we signify, we use the word to talk about something out in the world. When we symbolize, we do this thing with metaphor and poetry or the yellow sky and the Tintoretto painting. In the way he's talking about it, when you say signify, that's the fundamental function of prose. Mm -hmm. And symbolization is, for lack of a better term, a prose-like function of poetry. Well, I wouldn't call it prose-like because what I'm referring to is the... Is the objectness of it. Yeah. If yellow sky symbolizes anguish, anguish is submerged in yellow sky. So he gives this example in that section right at the beginning, after the timid sadness and the heat mist. Who can distinguish the green apple from its tart gaiety? Aren't we already saying too much in naming the tart gaiety of the green apple? There is green, there is red, and that is all. There are things that exist by themselves. It is true that one might by convention convert the value of signs upon them. But if we do that, then we're not paying attention to the thing anymore. Yeah, so if you start always saying green apple when what you mean is tart gaiety, then you've submerged that into green apple. It's now a sign. You're using prose now. You're not speaking of an object anymore. Yeah, that's a case when you start making roses signify things. That's a case in which you do try to use them as signifiers so that you're not even thinking about the roses and the attention cuts through. But the artist stops at form. The artist is enchanted by form. The form isn't a throwaway like a prose word is. As he says, if after the agreement, right roses signify fidelity to me, the fact is that I have stopped seeing them as roses. They have to stay roses. They do stay roses when they're functioning as symbols or in poetry. And you cross that line when they stop being those objects and as are signs. The way you're talking about it seems confusing because is it that the roses have to stay roses or that the word rose has to stay what are we talking about here? Are we talking about roses or are we talking about roses as used as an image in a story? I think we can be talking about either thing in that case. But what he's going to move on to say is that the one transformation that the artist 
does make is that he might take a rose and turn that into an imaginary object if he does a painting of it. So whether we're thinking about the object or the imaginary object in the painting, we conventionally assign significances to them, but that's not what the artist is doing. Yeah, well, let's see what we think of that. On page 10, he's talking about a house. The writer can guide you, and if he describes a hovel, make it seem the symbol of social injustice and provoke your indignation. The painter is mute. He presents you with a hovel, that's all. You're free to see in it what you like. That attic window will never be the symbol of misery. For that, it would have to be a sign, whereas it is a thing. So if you don't present a hovel, you're in the realm of presenting a stereotype. But as a painter, your hands are kind of tied. So even if you're trying to do that sort of thing, what's on the painting, right, is a particular. The painter does not want to draw signs on his canvas. He wants to create a thing. Putting aside abstract art for a minute, right? He's created the hovel. That's what Sartre's saying that he's trying to do. He says in the previous paragraph to what we just read about the hovel, he's talking about music. He says, a cry of grief is a sign of the grief which provokes it. But a song of grief is both grief itself and something other than grief. It is the embodiment of it rather than the sign of it. So I think that's a more difficult case, actually. Just this thing about representational art. This is deeply counterintuitive. We think if somebody draws a picture of a house, it's supposed to depict and represent. He doesn't use the word depict anywhere. Clearly, it doesn't merely represent a house. What about this? If somebody does like a stick figure drawing of a person or a similarly simple version of a house, that seems like a symbol for house. We're not invited by the stick figure drawings to immerse ourselves in the house picture object as something deep and transcendent. I don't think it has to be representational in that sense, like a Dutch painting from the 1600s. I don't see why it couldn't be a stick figure and be a person. It's still a picturing relation, right? Yeah. So it's not completely arbitrary the way a word is. And it's also maintaining a picturing function in the sense that it doesn't disappear like the word and simply get you to the thing that's being referred to. If you do a stick figure of a person... Yeah, you might be evoking a lot of things. You might be evoking a more fleshed out person. You might be evoking any number of associations. And this is why I think it's important to keep the Tintoretto example in mind, because he's not saying that you can't use yellow sky to, in some sense, evoke, or I'm going to use the word symbolize again, (laughs) symbolize anguish, even if you can't signify anguish in the way a prose writer does. It's just that you get that the submersion of anguish. So whatever you're doing, even with the hovel, I mean, the hovel could also, in the same way the yellow sky is evocative of anguish, the hovel could be evocative of poverty and naturally might be evocative of the anguish of poverty or something like that. But the point is, it doesn't simply signify that like a word does. It's submerged in the particular thing that is the immediate object of our perception. To Mark's point, it does seem weird because. Anytime you make a painting, you're not actually building the hovel, right? You are making some kind of gesture towards it. A painting of a hovel isn't a hovel. It's evoking in some way. In that way, it's hard to not see it as a sign that points to a hovel. I guess the question is, does it merely connote a hovel? Or it seems like his distinction is between either connotation or representation, and there's nothing in between. And maybe that makes sense because he's going to be talking about words the rest of the time. And so he's really only bringing in painting here as a point of comparison to establish a few basic points. He's not actually giving us a thorough description of painting. 
if he was going to do that, he sure as hell better have some way to talk about depiction in a way that is not merely, I look at that and it is an object in itself and it is inky and it is yellow. And then it has certain connotations. It makes me think of hovels of little rundown houses out in the world. It's not merely an arbitrary connotation. No, it's not connotation. He's not denying representation. He uses that word various places. So the painting of a hovel represents a, a hovel. He calls it an imaginary object. Well, there's lots of layers to this, right? The imaginary object makes us think of something in the head. But suppose someone is standing with the easel. There's the hovel out there in the real world, and they've just painted it. Whatever you want to say about the painting, the relation of one to the other is picturing. That's not the relation of a signifier to a signified. Signifier to a signified is not a picturing relation. The word hovel does not stand for hovel by virtue of any similarity, by virtue of any structural isomorphisms in the mark itself to the outside world. There are lots of things going on in the painting. The parallel lines of the two sides of the hovel in the painting are isomorphic with the parallel lines of the hovel, things like that. The picturing relation is completely different and as a picture, it demands our attention in the way the sign doesn't. I think that's really the main point. We can't use pictures like a language. Although now I'm thinking of Egyptian hieroglyphs. But anyway. <laughs> I think some of the problem that I'm having here is I'm trying to get to exactly how strange Sartre's phenomenology of things in the world is. Right When he's describing this on the bottom of page 8, for the artist, the color, the bouquet, the tinkling of the spoon, the saucer are things in the highest degree. He stops at the quality of the sound or the form. He returns to it constantly and is enchanted by it. It is this color object that he's going to transfer to his canvas. And the only modification he will make it undergo is that he will transform it into an imaginary object. He is therefore as far as can be from considering colors and signs as a language. Now, if you read that as what you just described, he's looking at a hovel and he's going to transfer it to his canvas. He's actually not trying to transfer the hovel to his canvas. He's trying to transfer a visible form. And I think that's because his ontology is very much wrapped up with interpretation, right? It's not that we're just walking around in a world of physical objects, that the power of human freedom, the content of our perception is very much that we're in this blooming, buzzing confusion, the swirl of colors and things and whatever. And it's our freedom granted fixed in a lot of sedimented habits, whether it's society or things about the human condition that would give us those habits of picking out this or that as a physical object to picking out the hovel as a physical object. You know, the, the whole point of a novel like nausea is that you could just look at an ordinary thing and suddenly not see it as an ordinary thing anymore. See it as monstrous. See it as this pulsating, just, you know, the fact that any physical object is transcendent, is impermeable, that there's something about that that is freaky. <laughs> so naturally, if he has this freaky ontology where we're in the blooming, buzzing confusion and we sort of make objects out of it, but we're always at any danger, you know, this is the, the anguish of our freedom of reinterpreting things in a radically different way so that suddenly, you know, we're in a land of uh, pulsating, disgusting... <laughs> David Cronenberg land, something like that, then he's not going to have a normal account of artistic depiction where, oh yes, this picture of a house represents the physical house in the world. Especially when we're focusing on forms as we do in art, that's not actually the way perception works. We don't merely perceive it as house. And then the artist is going to put the houseness on the canvas. Like the whole point of the artist is he 
stops thinking about the utilitarian, the way you would think of a house as a tool, as a thing you could go in as a thing, you know, and starts to just contemplate the form. That's interesting. I, I still think, though, for our purposes at this point, when he says something like the color object is being transferred to the canvas, it's helpful to think of a distinction between a picturing relation and a signifying relation. So this transformation into the imaginary object, whatever we want to do with the epistemology and ontology of all that, ultimately. So you're right there contrasting the picturing and the signifying? I thought it was the referring and the signifying. Oh, you're sorry, signifying is referring. So the signifying would be when I talk about the hovel in prose. The picturing would, would be when I draw it or paint it. That, that's what I'm talking about is picturing, but yeah. And picturing is a form of symbolizing? Well, it can have symbolizing, but it's not intrinsically symbolizing. It's doing another function when it's symbolizing. Symbolizing, I'm thinking of as yellow sky meaning anguish. Yeah. But the primary thing there is then that picturing relation is that it's a thing rather than a sign of a thing. I think that's one of the reasons why he spends so much time with painting is because it's easier to see this relationship in painting where, as we've been talking about the hovel, you have a, whatever that painting is, it's particularized in this hovel or, you know, this stick figure or this object. In his account, it's all about those objects. And whatever ways in which it works as symbols, those are effectively prose relations when they're acting as signs. Yeah. So again, I kind of feel bad now that I've introduced the word symbol. He uses the word sign to refer to prose all the time. The empire of signs is prose. A symbol is my word, and it's not, Sard isn't using it when he does use it consistently in the way that I would want him to. I'm, I introduced that for myself to keep this straight. But when, so when I think of signification, I simply think of you know what we've talked about with, with prose, and then with symbolization, I'm, I'm thinking very specifically of bear represents my father, or yellow sky symbolizes anguish, where it's not signifying anguish, it's symbolizing anguish, and those two are radically different. And to symbolize anguish means to be the anguish submerged in yellow sky thing. Well, let's look back then to this melody thing that Dylan quoted. So this is the above the hovel part on page 10. Below the Tenoretto part. <laughs> right. The signification of a melody, if one can sp still speak of signification, is nothing outside the melody itself. Unlike ideas, which can be adequately rendered in several ways. Call it joyous or somber, it will always be over and above anything you can say about it. Not because it's passions, which are perhaps at the origin of the invented theme, have, by being incorporated into notes, undergone a transubstantiation and transmutation. A cry of grief is a sign of the grief which provokes it, but a song of grief is both grief itself and something other than grief. So that's weird, right? Saying that a song is grief as opposed to symbolizes grief, as opposed to connotes grief in the hearer or something like that. This is, again, I think reflective of his underlying really strange ontology. You might be right, but I just think more commonsensically, what he's trying to get us to is the, again, the sense in which instead of having the song, like the word grief signify, be a window to the thing that it's signifying, it's a completely different thing than the way we would experience the grief of the song of grief. But the cry of grief, which is the example he gives, is different than both of those. He's saying that a cry of grief is a sign of the grief that provokes it, which clearly that's not a sign in the way that Apple stands for Apple. It is an, a sign in the sense of an indication, 
an indication of a cause, but he's trying to contrast that with a song as you don't actually have to be sad to sing a sad song. I'm not totally sure here. There's another word that he uses that he wants to align with prose besides signify, which is in the line with his prose being committed or engaged, which is the word provoke. So in the Tenoretto section, he says that the yellow rift in the sky is not chosen to signify anguish or to provoke it. It is anguish and yellow sky at the same time. And then he uses the same word provoke in this case with grief. A cry of grief is the sign of the grief which provokes it. So in that provoking and that signifying are to him aligned. Whereas in the case of the song, that is an instantiation. It's an is, it's a thing, which as opposed to a consequence, something that's provoked or signed. Unfortunately, this example does complicate things because smoke is a sign of fire. Footprints are a sign that someone has been walking by. That's the sense in which he's using sign here. It's a natural relation. And then signification is this conventional relation. So they are two very different things, except for the fact that when we're interpreting things as natural signs, we're not paying attention to the smoke, you know, in that moment. So anyway, I think this unnecessarily complicates things. He wants to maintain that causal relation, though. It's compl- it makes it complicated, I agree, but I think to Mark's point about the ontology being a little bit weird, he seems to be keying on the causality relation between them. Um, well, when he's talking about signifying, but if he says then the sky is anguish and it is yellow sky at the same time, that's kind of what we have to decode. Why do we want to say... That's a poetical relation, Right. That the thing in poetry... So we're talking about, in poetry, it would be metaphor, right? It would be metaphor. So we would say... My love is like a rose. Well, let's stick to the yellow sky then. So just think about it in a poem. So yellow sky, the phrase in the poem could be a metaphor for anguish. So what do you call it? Symbolization or metaphor? Yeah, so his way of saying it is anguish. That's kind of the way we treat it when we talk about metaphor, right? We pretend that the metaphorical thing is the other thing and talk about it as if there's this identity. And he links it saying that's yellow sky and anguish at the same time. So he's arguing that as yellow sky, it's not sitting there and then signifying anguish. It is instantiating it. And it's also not making me, this is the really interesting thing, right? It's not making me feel anguish. In the same way, this gets to the, the whole aesthetic contemplation component where we, with Kant, we talked about the apple, the our aesthetic contemplation of the apple is not through the window of appetite, my wanting to eat the apple. It's something else. It's something formal. So it's really hard to get at, but it's an experience of almost like anguish from the outside or anguish formalized or something like that. But it's not like the feeling of anguish has been evoked in me or given to me. And it's not like I've been made to understand through it that someone else is anguished as I might in a prose. Ultimately, I don't think we're going to be able to treat this with any thoroughness until we read what he has to say about the emotions, because we're just seeing examples of a pattern he's already laid out in past works, where the phenomenology is such that you don't say, like we say now, that emotions are just in your head. When you're doing phenomenology, you're describing and you realize, again, we're not just these emotional creatures walking around in a cold world. He's much more comfortable actually attributing the emotions to things out there. So an analytic philosopher might say, oh, the picture of the yellow sky, there's a dispositional quality that it has to 
bring about feelings of a connotation, not to feel anguish. You don't necessarily feel anguish looking at it, but you recognize that people have the disposition to call it anguish or something like that. And I think Sartre is just trying to avoid, he might see that as a desperate attempt to retain our basically dualist ontology, right? Emotions, mental things are in the head, physical things are in the world. Because of the power of our freedom of interpreting our surroundings, why not just say that the anguish is in the world? Again, like nausea, you're not saying I feel nauseating. You're saying you're looking at the things in the world and saying that is right now to me seeming like a big nauseating mess. <laughs> it's in that sense that the yellow sky is anguish. It's not merely an indicator. So let's move through it. One more thing on that page, right after the thing about the song being grief, he says, or if one wishes to adopt the existentialist vocabulary, it is a grief which does not exist anymore, which is. So I think this is actually important, you know, for what we're going to talk about reading and the critiques, Wes, that you're referring to of focusing on past literature, dead things, is because a live communication from somebody is something that exists. Yeah, the existence is the subject. Existence is, is defined by freedom, is defined by subjectivity. Those are basically the same thing. And so if somebody screams, then you could say that person is existing as in anguish, I yep. think. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it is a recording of a scream or a scream channeled into a song, again, I'm kind of thinking of Herder, you know, as the original kind of song is the kind that is a scream. <laughs> but once you codify that, and then we can all do the scream together, or we can listen to the scream every year on our birthday, or whatever the thing is, it becomes a product. It merely is. It becomes an opaque object. So it's like it's thingified at that point. To say it's gone from existence to is mean it's gone from the subjective sense of anguish. It's been thingified as in the yellow sky is a thing. I think we got through all of that initial painting stuff and then we've decimated the first three pages <laughs> yeah <laughs> he will get into poetry and say that whether the prose writer deals with significations poetry is like painting and it doesn't even use words in the same sense as prose it serves them it dwells upon them yeah poets do not try to discern or expound the true or name the world. Poets use words as things, not as signs. So we want to think about words in terms of the same way we thought about yellow sky in the painting. It's words being used like paint, in a sense. He's got all kinds of great sentences to characterize this. He says, for the poet, language is a structure of the external world. The poet is outside language. He sees in the word the image of one of these aspects. Not knowing how to use words as a sign of an aspect of the world, he sees in the word the image of one of these aspects. He considers words as a trap to catch a fleeing reality rather than as indicators which throw him out of himself into the midst of things. In short, all language is for him the mirror of the world. Just to flesh this out a little bit, I just want to give one of the examples from a little later, page 18, where he says, He's giving this poem, O seasons, O castles, what soul is faultless? And you might say, what does the author mean by that? Well, it sounds like what soul is faultless is a rhetorical question to say that nobody is faultless. But he's saying, actually, no, nobody is questioning the poet is absent. 
And the question involves no answer, or rather, it is its own answer. Is it therefore a false question? But it would be absurd to believe that Rimbaud meant that everyone has his faults. As somebody else said, if he had meant it, he would have said it. Nor did he mean to say anything else. He asked an absolute question. He conferred upon the beautiful word soul an interrogative existence. So what do you think of that? That you actually can't say, what did the author mean by that? Like that lines of poetry are given as things in themselves, not like a piece of prose where you say, oh, an author wrote this. An author is trying to communicate something. What is the author trying to communicate? In this, the words are not meant to communicate in that way. They're just meant to exist in themselves and you gaze upon them as you would a statue. We should say, though, that when we talk about words, we're not just talking about the marks on the page or the sounds of the words. So that complicates the issue significantly. <laughs> in the same way that when we're talking about Tintoretto's painting, we're not just talking about, hey, there's paint on the canvas. We're talking about sky. So it's still words insofar as they have meanings. So if we use the phrase yellow sky in a poem, it's not just the utterance, not just the sounds and the forms of the words. The meaning of yellow sky is significant for the purpose of the poem. It's just that, again, in the same way it's not doing the signifying, it's not signifying in the painting, it's not signifying in the poem either in that same way, which is another way of saying it's being used metaphorically. And when we use, when we engage in metaphor, that's what we're doing. We're treating these images, these meanings, as if they were things. The problem is metaphor is still fundamentally referential in that I know you said before, like, look, when he says the yellow sky is anguish, what he really means is that the yellow sky is a metaphor for anguish. But I'm not sure that he can do that because Again, we're just saying it's a different sort of referring relation. Like, I don't see metaphor as a referring relation. It points to something outside itself. Yeah, but I don't think he means it to be metaphor. At least, maybe that's what he should say. But in this, just like in the case with Tenerato, where he's insisting that there's an existence here, he lines this up, this set of lines from Rimbaud. Yeah, this example I don't think is metaphor. I think this example yeah, is much he more says complicated. He, he, That's the problem. But he says that he asked an absolute question. He conferred upon the world ama, an interrogative existence. The interrogation has become a thing as the anguish of Tintoretto became a yellow sky. It is no longer a meaning but a substance. So he means something pretty strong here. I don't. I mean, regardless of whether we whether we agree with him, he means this thinginess about what a painting is and also how a poem is functioning. You're just the man who brings in the different translation every time. <laughs> it's always instructive. I, I'm not objecting. You know, you just said it, it is no longer a meaning, but a substance. My version says it is no longer a signification, but a substance. So you can see why those might be used interchangeably. But given how much trouble we've had in nailing yeah. down signify versus symbolize versus <laughs> depict and these other words most of which he doesn't use it's some interesting extra wrinkles <laughs> yeah it's a problem i do think that we're ultimately just for listeners sake we're talking about figurative use of language versus literal use ultimately i think so his way of putting it i think it's very good at getting at what we're doing when we use figurative language this idea you know of calling it a substance calling it a thing and maybe there is something stronger than that there, Dylan. We're struggling to articulate it as an interpretation of poetry, which on the one hand it is, 
But I think it's probably worth reminding ourselves that it's, I think, in the end, for the sake of understanding prose. And I think the point he wants to most make is that prose is about provoking and signifying and has a particular relationship to freedom and stuff like that. That this whole thing is an interpretation to distinguish poetry from prose, but his eye is on prose. It's not on poetry. That is definitely a good point in terms of not being discouraged by this part of this. I still feel like he dwells on it enough and it's interesting enough that what we're doing here is not useless. <laughs> no, I, I in no way think it's useless. I, in fact, I am happy to stay on it. I just, I guess one thing we keep saying, Wes has said it a few times, is that he brings up things that on the one hand seem clear, but then are immediately very complicated. And even his examples are very complicated. And his explanation ends up being complicated. So that makes it interesting and rich, but it also, it seems a very, I say, provocative way to talk about poetry, to really put it into that box of being about existence and about things and picturing. It seems to be not quite the whole story. And one indicator of that is just the way in which words act as signs anyway. Like what Wes was just saying, well, you have to remember that it's not just like this ink on the page. The words aren't like paintings. It's not like a painting on the page. They actually, they can't be separated from their meaning, but it has to be their meaning in a particular way. This is why the figurative idea helps. So the idea of figurativeness is where things, where words become paintings. So when we're using metaphors, we're using words as if they were paint. Well, actually, when Wes mentioned that it's not actually marks on the page, I'm not sure if Sartre can say that. Like, he seems very bent on... E. e. Cummings would disagree, right? <laughs> yeah, well, so he's very bent on distinguishing different things by the experience we have of them. So, for instance... You know, the way we use poetry, if you're reading poetry on a page or someone is saying those very same words out loud to you. If they're marks on the page, they're not readable. If they're just marks on the page, first of all, they're no more readable than my window blinds are readable. So you can't read a poem that's just marks on the page. I guess the question is, though, is the work of art necessarily, does it include, if you're going to ontologize, if you're going to thingize and say, we're not seeing through the words, we're looking at the words themselves. You have to be looking at the words then as signifiers, but you're also looking at the sonorous aspects of them. That for sure. I think he could also say then, why not consider the visual aspects of them, right? So in other words, it really would be a different thing to hear a poem and to read the very same poem. Some poems, that makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think the sound and, and you know, if you're reading it on the page, the way the, you know, the visual representation of the poem, yeah, of course he would say all of those things are relevant, but they become entirely irrelevant if the words don't mean anything. If I'm just reading cuneiform, for instance, and so I, I know enough to know, right, it's a language, so I'm not under the illusion that it's just simply random marks or my window blinds. And suppose I could even sound it all out. It can't really function as poetry if that's all it is. Maybe it can function as music or proto-music. Right. I, you could just say, I love the sound of Spanish poetry. I don't know any Spanish but I just get all these, pull up on Spotify, all my Spanish poets playlist, and I just let them say their beautiful words into my ear all the time. But in that case, clearly then it would even matter like who's saying them? What is the sonorous quality of their voices? How are they saying them? And that 
You could say all that stuff matters. The point is that I'm just saying that none of it matters unless the words also mean something. <laughs> yeah. But wouldn't also part of the point in that prose poetry distinction be that the fact that all of those things matter for poetry are yet other indications of poetry being on the side of words as things? Yeah. He uses this phrase of, you know, being able to get outside of language and look at it as if you were God. Yep. The poet so, is creating an object. Continue that story, page 14, not knowing how to use them as a sign of an aspect of the world. He's pretending again that the poet doesn't know how to use words the way we normal people do. Instead of using it as a sign of an aspect of the world, he sees in the word the image of one of these aspects. And the verbal image he chooses for its resemblance to the willow tree or the ash tree is not necessarily the word which we use to designate those objects. As he's already on the outside, he considers words as a trap to catch a fleeting reality rather than as indicators which throw him out of himself into the midst of things. Uh, in short, all language for him is a mirror of the world. As a result, important changes take place in the internal economy of the word. Its sonority, its length, its masculine or feminine endings, its visual aspect compose for him a face of flesh which represents rather than expresses signification. So that's weird. You know, it, <laughs> we're not even talking about signification versus representation it's that signification itself can be just embodied. In other words, when the word apple refers to an apple, then the word apple is expressing signification. It is a signifier. <laughs> but when it merely represents signification, then you're saying, yeah, the word apple is the kind of word that is usually used to refer to those red things in the world. And we're playing on that to talk about representation itself. Yeah. Right. Everywhere in my version, it says meaning instead of signification. It represents rather than expresses meaning. It represents than ex rather than expresses meaning, yes. That's what it says. I don't know if either of those is clear. <laughs> I mean, I think that's okay. If it weren't, if we were all using that translation, I don't think it'd be a problem. <laughs> but uh, let's just revisit the concluding part of the poetry, which is that it demands aesthetic withdrawal. The whole reason he's going through all of this is to say he accepts the idea that poetry can't be engaged as opposed to prose. So, And I read some of that before. So this is on page 18. If this is the case, one easily understands how foolish it would be to require a poetic engagement. Emotion can certainly be the origin of the poem, but they are not expressed there as in a pamphlet or, or in a confession. Insofar as the writer of prose exhibits feelings, he illustrates them, whereas if the poet injects his feelings into the poem, he ceases to recognize them. That submergence we talked about. The words take hold of them, penetrate them, and metamorphose them. They do not signify them. Even in his eyes, emotion has become a thing. It now has the opacity of things. So just in the same way that the anguish gets submerged in yellow sky when it's symbolizing it, if I use a poem to signify political indignation, for instance, it undergoes that same submergence and the emotions are attenuated. And that's why you can't use poetry for political engagement because you're always just getting second level aesthetic withdrawal, which is the way he'll describe that later on. Right. So right after that, he says, how can one hope to provoke the indignation or the political enthusiasm of the reader when the very thing one does is to withdraw him from the human condition and invite him to consider with the eyes of a god a language that has been turned inside out. And he says, someone may say, you're forgetting these poems, and I, not knowing the things 
he's referring to here, I would just insert the things that he just talked about or is about to talk about in Black Orpheus. Those seem like political poems, but he's saying, no, by uncovering the black soul, that could lead to the sort of solidarity that then gets you to political action, but it's not a manipulation that is intended to do that. It's hard to see what it is doing. It's displaying something, right, as opposed to telling you what it means. And it's the power of the display that might be convincing. It's the power of the portrait. But the political act would be the act of the reading itself, not the poem. I just don't see the difference between poetry and prose in this respect, that maybe one could say that, you know, the kind of thing that was being lobbed against him is, hey, Sartre, show, don't tell, (laughs) right? If you want to have one of your plays lead people to think about injustice and to go to correct it, what you need to do is exactly what one is doing in these poems that he's praising in Black Orpheus and to show suffering. And then you say, hey, there's suffering. It's being illustrated by the poem. It's not being referred to by the poem. The poem is not exhorting me to go out and fix the suffering, but it's showing me the suffering like a song that it has a scream in there and is inviting me vicariously to feel that. That totally sounds like an incitement to political action, just like (laughs) the many political songs there are. Truth is marching on, we will overcome. But I guess that's not real poetry, according to how Sartre is considering it, because it's too literal. Perhaps we should just leave this (laughs) and end part one and talk about prose with the rest of this essay and the entire second chapter in our second half, or become a partially examined life citizen and hear it right now. See ya! Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.